Turn in your Bibles once again, if you would, tonight to Titus, still in chapter 1. And this evening we will complete a two-part sermon here that we began last week here on the, the uh, quali- qualifications of the eldership, a little mini-series that we had here within the book study here. Uh, we uh, went fairly quickly through the material here on the process of appointing. Not a whole lot said, but uh, perhaps more could be said. But we wanted to get right away to the qualifications for the eldership, for the pastorate. And uh, what, what we find here is a list of 16 items, if I counted correctly here. And these are the items that God wants us to be looking for when we evaluate those who would be prospective ministers here. And I thought it would be appropriate to accelerate things to make sure we got through this series before next week uh, so that uh, you are aware, not that you weren't already, but perhaps be reminded of what we are to be looking for, this, uh, this crucible for establishing the credibility and qualification of pastoral ministry. Paul began, as we, uh, as we saw last week, here in Titus 1, also in 1 Timothy 3, with an expectation of the most important thing, and that is, there in verse 6, that a man must be above reproach, and then he offers the very first sphere of that reproachlessness, and that is in his domestic relations. So that was the first sphere of, of, of qualification here, the domestic sphere. He has to be the husband of one wife and have children who believe and are not accused of what's described here as dissipation or rebellion. So we saw, first of all, last week that a minister must be a one-woman man. It's actually a single word in the Greek here, one-woman man. Leaves no room, incidentally, uh, for any consideration of a one-man woman or a one-man man or even a one-woman-at-a-time man, as some have suggested over the years. Most importantly, however, the point seems to be that a pastor must have eyes for just one woman. He must have a long-standing reputation for exclusive faithfulness to his wife, have no wandering eyes for any intimate conversation with, physical relationship with, any girl, whether that be a real girl or a virtual one, other than his own wife. That's with a very black period afterwards. With respect to the latter here of of his his children, we saw here, we waded into something of a thick question here as to what the expectation is. The words are uh, perhaps could be confused could be confusing. It says here in your text, having children who believe, and there is a debate depending on what translation that you have in front of you. You'll find that uh, you might not have those exact words. Uh, The other alternative here is that they are faithful, that is, with respect to their deportment. Okay, so the the word word here is, is faithful or believing. Both words are the same in the Greek, and it could be either one. We suggested last week that perhaps Uh, we should think of it as the latter, that the children should be towing the line in terms of obedience. A a man cannot guarantee the salvation of his own children, 
furthermore, uh, as is going to be the case next week, you're going to be evaluating a man with very young children who probably cannot be described as believers at this point, and he is not for that reason disqualified. However, uh, the expectation is that the children should be under control and respectful of their parents' expectations. Not be, you're not, you're not you know, eyeing them down the whole service to find out whether they squirm a little bit too much. That's, that's not the point. The point here is, do they mind their parents? Do they mind? Okay. And especially, as the text goes on, as they get older, they're not accused here of dissipation or of rebellion. They aren't marked here by, by, by such, such behavior that would draw disrepute uh, to the family of the minister. And the, the reason is given, not here in Titus, but in 1 Timothy 3, because if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, however, can he possibly be expected to manage the household of God, the church? And that's the question. So the, this is perhaps the most important of the spheres of, of examination here. But there are four more that we're going to look at tonight. And as you can tell by the fact, we're going to try and do four instead of just one, as we did last week. Is not that, not that these are unimportant, but that that first one rises to the to the to the top as of extreme importance. But let's look at the rest of this passage, verses seven to nine, and I think we'll see here four more spheres of qualification for the elder. It's verse seven to verse nine for the overseer, we find here must be above reproach again. Now in another sphere as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, and holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So, there are, it's, uh, just to let you know, you've, you ju we just read 14 different items on this list, but for sake of organization, I think we can break this down into four spheres. Okay, last week we talked about the sphere of his domestic relationship, his wife and children. Secondly here, we're going to see here tonight the sphere of his public character. We find that he has to be not self-willed, or as 1 Timothy says, not arrogant not a recent convert so that he's conceited. Secondly, here he's not to be quick-tempered, and he's not to be a drunkard or a violent man. Second sphere, then, so that's his public character. How is he known in terms of his character? Second is that of his civic reputation. And we find here that the terms here is that he is not to be a lover of money, but a lover of people and a lover of good. And uh, we're going to see here that the, the good here is probably not the idea of moral good, but as doing good. So uh, be uh, a, a generous or a philanthropic kind of, of, uh, of term here, rather than someone who loves being righteous. Of course, he should love being righteous too, but that's not the emphasis of the term here. That's a civic reputation. How is he known for conducting himself in civil society. Third, the, the next sphere here is that of his personal ethics and industry. He's to be self-controlled, we find here. He is supposed to be devout, 
upright and self-controlled or 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 we could say disciplined then finally verse 9 covers the sphere of his skills and this is this is we 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 wait until the very end of the list before we get to this there's four spheres before we come to this one that's this is really the only aspect of this list that has to do with his his skills all the rest have to do with his character this one has to do with his skills he must firstly hold firm to the trustworthy word the faithful word which is in accordance with this body of doctrine called the teaching so that he will be able to instruct that he can exhort in sound doctrine so he's able to teach to use the language of first timothy 3 and then he also must be able to rebuke or refute those who contradict sound doctrine. So that's the last of the spheres. So as we're, as we're going to be looking at this tonight, uh, recognize again, like last week, that most of these, because they have to do with personal character, are things that we can all aspire to. So you know, have, have a two, two tracks in your mind here. Okay? One track is, okay, I've got to think about what, how I'm going to approach next week when we evaluate a man, okay? But then secondly, we ask ourselves, are we measuring up? Because other than that last sphere in which we're talking about skills requisite of a pastor, all of these are things that we can aspire to. And quite frankly, some of us can aspire to the last set of things too. Uh, but those are not something required of every believer. So the notes, if you're taking them tonight, is this. So it's the sphere of public character, the, the sphere of civic reputation, the sphere of personal ethics and industry, and then the sphere of his pedagogy, his teaching skills. Okay? So let's look at these in order then first. We're going to look at the pastor's public character. Public character, and Paul offers four adjectives here. As we, as we work our way through this. We find, first of all, he must be above reproach as God's steward. Other translations actually have here, don't be arrogant, probably bending a bit to what we find in Paul's other list in 1 Timothy 3. This is, this is his concern. He wants them not to be arrogant, but to be humble. And Paul adds in 1 Timothy 3, he shouldn't be a new convert, because new converts have a tendency to become conceited when elevated too quickly, right? We love new converts, right? They've, they've, got, they've got an unending zeal. It's exciting to be around a new convert. But Paul seems to suggest that they don't necessarily make the best of pastors. You know, a, a church is impoverished if they don't have new converts. At the same time, those don't make the best of pastors. Why is that? Well, because they haven't you know, been around the block very often, particularly as a Christian. They aren't famil as familiar with the word as they, as they might be. They can have excitement and have ideas that haven't really gone through the rigors of vetting, uh, whether within the, in, in the context of a church or in the context of a school. And so sometimes they can, they can sort of go off on ideas that perhaps aren't the wisest. And the tendency then can be to become conceited. This is, this is a great idea. I thought it up. And uh, we're going to go through with it anyway. But uh, 
but Paul says, you know, you, you want to make sure that you have someone here who is not proud, someone who is humble, who can admit that sometimes he does have stupid ideas, but who rarely makes them. Churches over large can, at, lar at large can be overwhelmed uh, by this problem. We have a, we have a, a great uh, tendency in our day uh, to, uh, to not honor the gray head, uh, but give deference to the young. Okay? And it's, it's kind of funny to see that because the scriptures always have that in reverse, right? Okay? There's, always, there's always a concern that we uh, make sure that the gray head is adhered to, listened to, because he has the voice of wisdom and humility. So how do we know, you know, when somebody comes in, how do we know whether they're conceited or not or arrogant? Well, a humble person, there's a few practical things you perhaps look for. A humble person is able to apologize and sometimes can apologize even when no apology is necessary. A humble person allows that he can be wrong and even concedes that he might be wrong even when he knows he's right, right? A humble person can abandon an inconsequential debate that he could easily win. A humble person doesn't have to have the last word in every kind of discussion. Fifthly, a, a humble person can do something great and not post it on Facebook. Or... He can be terribly wrong and not put that on Facebook either, <laughs> right? In fact, there's a good thing to look at. You know, look at his Facebook page. Find out what he says. His personal blog, if he has one. And his demeanor when he's in public dialogue. Is he, in Paul's word here, an arrogant person or is he a humble person? Secondly, he's not to be arrogant or self-willed. And secondly, he's not to be quick-tempered, quick-tempered. Now, the first, at first blush, the, the concern may seem to be whether he gets angry and yells a lot, which, of course, a pastor ought to do. But I think probably the emphasis is more on the quick than on the temper, okay? Uh, probably it's the, the idea of impulsiveness, acting and speaking in an impulsive way, speaking quickly and without regard for who will take who will take offense, taking sharp verbal shots in emotionally charged settings, making big changes without consultation, I think falls under this category. Ask him, for instance, what he might change in the church and see how measured or reserved his response is. I like those words, measured and reserved. Impulsive pastors can be a death to a church because one by one they will tick off every member until there's none left, right? Thirdly here, the pastor must not be addicted to wine. On the face of things, this seems to be an easy thing to discover. Ask him whether he drinks or not and ask the people around him, does he drink? But I think there's probably a little bit more going on here than just drinking, okay? In fact, they... they First century context was different than ours. It's probably not even an absolute ban of alcohol because Paul actually tells Timothy in the free previous book to take a little bit of wine to settle his stomach. What is probably being prohibited here is regular attention to any 
habit, whether that be a, a habit that involves some sort of a substance or even some sort of an activity that will result in inattention to his responsibilities. Okay? Something that will uh, cause him either to lose control or lose focus on what he is doing. Whether that's impaired judgment, rowdiness, it can, it can be alcohol, it can be some other controlled substance. It can be some sort of a habit like, like uh, you know, either video games that might take away one's focus, or, or you know, basketball, where he gets, you know, loses control when he's, when he's out there on the basketball court. None of these things is wrong, per se, but if done to excess, and he's a slave to these things, as a man may be a slave to wine, these are the kinds of things we want to be concerned about. So we're looking here, not only about at drugs and liquor here, but about time-consuming or temper-inducing hobbies to which a man might be inordinately attentive. Finally, in this sphere here, we, have, we come to his suppression of violence. He's not to be pugnacious. You know the word, a pugilist, the old word for a boxer here. He's not, he doesn't take quick swings at people, okay? not literally or in verbal conversation. He has instead, if I can borrow again from 1 Timothy 3, he's to be gentle and peaceable. He makes peace rather than war. Question is, is he patient? Is he gracious? Is he courteous? These are things that we're all familiar with, but perhaps a way to examine him is to observe how he interacts with the children and with the elderly. These are classes of people with which sometimes, A, we can become annoyed, people to whom we can become rude, or people we can simply ignore. Find out how he treats those in the, in the, on the edges of the age spectrum. It tells you a little bit about whether he's a gentle man, a peaceable man. Observe how he interacts with a person, a man or a woman in the church who simply talks too much, asks inflammatory questions. Every church has one or two of these, right? I'm trying not to look at any. I'm looking at my wife here because I can't get in trouble there. She's not in your church here. But everybody's got someone there, you know, who's got a, he's got a, a little bit of a reputation for asking, you know, needling questions or, or ugly questions or unnecessary questions. Just, but that's, that's okay. You know, let those questions come out. See how he responds to them. Those are that it does, it does he is he good at diffusing strife, or do his answers intensify it, or is he able to extract himself courteously, diffuse that awkward situation? He should be good at that if he because he is a gentle, a peaceable man. He's taken the time to figure out how to carry on a conversation well and peacefully. And all of these, I think, speaks to the pastor's public character, these personal character traits that slowly divulge him themselves in his discourse with the public. Okay? So come next week and engage in conversation, whether that be personal conversation, group conversation. I don't know that there'll be next week an occasion for asking questions in a formal setting here, but eventually we may get to that, that level as well. Come prepared. 
with those kinds of questions to discover these things about him. And, and probably the best time to evaluate someone uh, for, the, for, the, for the ministry is when he doesn't realize he's being examined. Okay? When, he's, when he's finally gotten down and he's off his guard and he's relaxed a bit. Now, now you can talk to him and you can evaluate him further and he just doesn't even realize he's being evaluated. A second sphere, a second sphere to which we need to be attentive here is the pastor's civic reputation, his civic reputation, or as Paul words it in 1 Timothy 3 again, his reputation with outsiders. In this sphere, we have three qualities listed, all of which appear in our text here as one of the pastor's loves. You know, here in 1 Timothy and in Titus, we find these words, he is to be a lover of or not a lover of. Okay, the Greek word here, philos, is, is used. You're familiar with philosophy, the love of wisdom, philanthropy, the love of people. Philadelphia, the love of one's brothers and sisters. And Paul uses some of these terms here. He, he, he continues and perhaps even creates words of his own that begin with phila. Okay? One is negative and two are positive. He must not be a lover of money. Here it says here, not, a, uh, not fond of sordid gain. But he should be here hospitable, literally here, a lover of people, and then a lover of good. So this is the only one that actually shows up as love in your, in your text. But all three of these begin with philos, okay? This, he's a lover. He is not a lover of money. He is a lover of people. He is a lover of good. So let's look at these in order. First, Paul says that the minister must not be a lover of money, uh, a, a one of not fond of sordid gain. I, I, I don't think the idea here is so much that he is a lover of, of, of you know, the bad money, dishonest gain here, but rather of inordinate gain. He's, he's not after money as an end. You know, he, he wants more and more and more. Okay? Uh, so, so he's not greedy must be careful here because Paul has clearly already stated that pastors have a right to earn their living from the gospel. So the, this is not some sort of a permission here for the church now to say, ah, we don't have to pay him then, or we can pay him a pittance. That's not, that's not the point. Pastor in 1 Timothy 5 is to be, uh, to be a, uh, worthy of a, of a double honor as, as you're able. So, so what does it mean then that the man is not a lover of money? What it means is that he has no reputation for hoarding money or for being miserly, but rather has a reputation positively for being generous. We should all be known in society as givers rather than takers. Practically, it means when you go into the 7-Eleven, uh, you should leave more pennies in the penny tray than you take. I mean, that's a sort of a basic thing. Hey, but when it comes to bringing donuts to the break room, you bring more donuts over the course of your time at work than you collectively eat over the course of time. Okay? You should be known as a giver rather than a taker. Something very simple here. Offer more time over the course of a life to help others than they help you collectively 
over the course of time. This is not natural. We like to be served rather than to serve. And so it, it must be learned here to be a generous person with one's finances and with one's time. And a pastor must have learned this over the course of time uh, such that not only he but also his family have lost their grip on their rights and their resources. They're eminently unselfish. So he's not to be a lover of money. Secondly, Paul says, pastors must be lovers of people. Now, we've already used the word here for lovers of people earlier, philanthropy. This is not the word that's used here. We might expect it to be. It's actually, you know, it's philozenos. Now, I don't, again, I don't normally bring my Greek into the pulpit here, but you're familiar with the word xenophobia, okay? It's a fear of foreigners, strangers, okay? It's pe people, other people groups, literally, okay? So he is supposed to be a lover of strangers, a lover of foreigners, a lover of the kinds of people that don't really fit in, is the idea. A lover of strangers, a lover of the disenfranchised, a lover of societal outlovers, a, a, a lover of people who simply can't give back. Not just the use of resources here, to help people who are marginalized in society, but actually helping marginalized people. Not only spending money, but self. And that's what a pastor needs to be able to do. Uh, he needs to actually care about people who we don't ordinarily jump to care for. They're the people that are, that again, these are the kinds of people who can't give back. So it has to be an act of true love to extend something to them because you're never going to get it back again, okay? at least not in this life. Thirdly, Paul says that pastors need to be lovers of good, lovers of good. So hospitable, we find there, and loving what is good. Now, both in Greek and English, we know that the word good has many meanings, and it may seem natural to take this term as a reference to moral good or righteousness. He loves, uh, you know, holiness. But as we look at the specific term used here, and again, uh, is it, it, and the context of this list here of public, society, public piety, it, it becomes much more likely that Paul here is talking about doing good in the civic sense, what we might call benevolence. Does the pastor have a reputation among his peers and among his neighborhood for being benevolent? Is he, or is he, is he known as miserly? Find out who his, who his previous uh, colleagues were. Ask them. Is he a giver? Does, does, it, does, he, does he hold on to his money very tightly? Or is he generous? Does he shovel the neighbor's walk? Will he go, you know, as he's walking along the sidewalk and buy that grossly overpriced lemonade from a local stand manned by a toothless little kid? Well, he should. Because that is the kind of person who is a lover of good. This sphere of pastoral qualification is often overlooked. Uh, we we want to know how he is as a Christian, but here we're asking questions as 
How is he as a citizen? How is he as a public servant? How is he as a neighbor? How is he as a colleague at work? How is he as a mom or a dad? Okay. How does he function within society? Now, we, we, all, we, all, we all say, well, that's not the most important thing, right? We, we, we've been sort of schooled over and again that you know, giving you know, down and outers a bowl of soup is not going to make them any more likely to become a Christian. That's true. At the same time, it does not mean that we can be unkind within society or ungenerous or unfeeling uh, within our civil society. We need to have a reputation for good outside the church. Otherwise, there will be no platform for evangelism as we work our way further through this list. Okay? So using Paul's words in 1 Timothy 3, the pastor must be well thought of by outsiders. He must not only be a good Christian, but also a good citizen, neighbor, and man. This brings us to our third sphere of pastoral qualification, which I've labeled here the sphere of personal ethics and industry. And we find four qualifications here on this list. He is to be sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. I'm actually going to take the first and last ones together because they're very, very similar to one another. They are to be sensible and self-controlled. Perhaps you might have a translation that says disciplined here. These are both, these terms both sort of are the, are the opposite side of being quick-tempered, which defined, we defined as being impulsive. And so here we have this positive statement that the man of God is to be reserved and measured in his responses. The terms carry the sense of being able to calmly plan life and work, make sensible decisions. So in fact, that's the term that's used in the Holman Christian Standard, make sensible decisions here. And then stays on task until the job is done. He has a good work ethic. The pastorate is filled with interruptions. It's just the nature of of the task, of the job. And these, these interruptions often come at the most inconvenient of times. And if you've combined this kind of a vocation with a drifting mind, with impulsiveness, and especially with procrastination, know this, eventually he's going to get into this pulpit unprepared. And he may make a habit of it. Let me throw out another word. He might prove to be unreliable. My dad used to tell me something that his dad used to tell him, and now I tell my sons, and that is this. Steady gets the job done. You're familiar with that phrase? You hear that phrase? Well, I heard it growing up all the time. I used to roll my eyes when I used to hear it from, from my dad, and then suddenly I find myself using that line myself, and I have real hopes that, you know, someday, you know, my kids will start saying the same line again with their kids. Because I think, it, I think it, it's, a, it's a great line. Steady gets the job done. That's what it means to be self-controlled and disciplined. It's a, it's a great habit for all of life, and it's essential for the pastorate. Next item on the list here is righteousness. He is just or righteous. You'll recall above that we... Uh, define the term lover of good as a lover of civic good, 
Now, we, now is the time that we can talk here about moral good. Okay? This is a lover of morality. He has high regard for values like honesty and integrity and purity. And finally here on this list, he must also be a man of industry. Okay? It says here he is just and devout and holy. Okay, so the term here is not a rare one. Some of these terms we've looked at are even unique to this list or very rarely used in the scripture. This one's all over the place. To be holy. Here the term has more to do with a pastor's disposition than it does about his behavior. In fact, this is why some translations, like the one in front of you, uses the word devout. Other translations use the word reverent, dignified sober, pious. These are the kinds of words here. Perhaps the best word that comes to mind when I think of it is he's got gravity. He's got gravitas, if you, if you, if you, if you prefer the Latin, right? Yeah. So he doesn't mean he walks around with his hands folded and, and glides on his feet so that you can't see that his feet are moving. That's, that's not the point of, of gravity. But rather, this is a man who is aware of the warning in James that not many of you ought to be teachers because those who teach are judged with a more strict judgment. He is aware of the gravity of what he's doing. He's shepherding souls, and it's the most weighty vocation that there is. And, that f and failure here involves consequences of the most dreadful variety. And he's become poignantly aware of that. Doesn't mean he can't have fun or can't be funny. But he isn't a goof, right? He's not a goof-off. He doesn't while away his time with youthful trivialities. And the word silly just wouldn't fit him, okay? He's got to be someone who is pure and devout, a man of gravity. These four adjectives are the hallmark, then, of the pastor's ethic. His view of sin, his view of industry, his view of work. He must, uh, his demeanor as a, as, a, as a pastor when it comes to his view of sin must be such that sins are not known. He is not known by sin. He is disciplined, he's reliable, known for his moral purity, known for his gravity. Look for these things uh, when, the, when the man comes uh, to stand in this pulpit. And up till this point, Look at yourselves, too. Because these are all qualities, every one, that we can cultivate ourselves and, uh, and, uh, and, and ought to cultivate. They're necessary for a pastor. They're things to which all of us ought to aspire. In verse 9, then, we find this last sphere of pastoral qualification, which I've called, for lack of a better word, the pedagogical sphere. Is he able to? To teach. Remember, that's, that's the line that's used in 1 Timothy 3, right? He's apt to teach or able to teach. Titus, you, in Titus, the words are this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word that has been taught so that he may give instruction in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So here we have three separate skills that are listed here. First, and I think they, they appear to us in a, in a progression. He must know and believe the word. So he, he, he must have a, you know, 
he, he must be familiar with what it says and be aware of what it says when questions are asked. He has answers prepared because he knows the word well. Second, he needs to be able to teach the word. And third, he must be able to defend the word. So, and I think there's a progression there. Uh, all of us should be able to know the word. Uh, the, the, the expectation of being able to teach is something that is not required of all believers, but certainly of the pastor. But even another step beyond that, he's not only be able to, got to be able to stand behind the pulpit and say what the Bible says, but he's also got to be able to field the questions, right? Okay. He's got to be able to refute those who contradict. Or if I can say a little bit more broadly, he's able to do a Q&A with people. He's able to answer the questions. And, uh, and sometimes those questions, as you well know, are not always sincere questions. They're, they're leading questions. They're bullying questions. And he needs to be able to handle them. So let's look at these one by one. First, we need, we need to discover whether he knows the word and whether he believes the word. Perhaps one of the easiest questions we can ask here is, is has he been to school for instruction in the word of God? Now, this is not the only way one can get instruction about the Word of God. One can receive it in the context of the local church. Uh, one can receive it by personal discipline, and reading books and such. But school is often a way in which we can get an intense education, uh, a disciplined education from, you know, from, from, from well-equipped professors who are able to sort of you know, steer him in the correct directions. Okay? and actually give him tests to make sure he's not just you know, skimming through, but is actually make, paying attention to what he's reading. Again, it's not a guarantee that just because someone's been to school uh, that he is a, he's going to know the word, nor is someone who has not been to school guaranteed not to know the word. Nonetheless, it does help uh, to have a, a good, it's a good indication here. Uh, another thing we can do here is run through his personal doctrinal statement. It says here he's supposed to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The teaching. The paradosis. This, 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 this block of doctrinal material that has been agreed upon by the church. Does he know it? Does he know it thoroughly? So look through his doctrinal statement. He should have one. Ask for it. Look through it. Go through it with a fine-tooth comb and ask about things you don't understand. He may have things right, but he might be using some big words that you don't know. This is, this is a great opportunity. Ask, what do you mean by that? Because if he can you know, take those, you know, that compact statement and elaborate upon it and put the cookies down a little bit lower so that everyone can understand what's there, then we understand that this is a person who knows what he believes and not, has not simply copied it out of some... Confess, doctrinal confession that was available to him. And, and watch him. Does he, does, he, does, he get a, does he get excited about this? Is he enthusiastic to talk about doctrine? Or is this something that annoys him? Or perhaps flusters him? Well, this is the stuff of his craft. He should be, he should be delighted to talk about what the scriptures have to say and how it all fits together. And so if you, you find that, that sentiment uh, that he's... he's He's enthusiastic about the Word of God and what it says, uh, then you've got a keeper here. Okay? So he needs 
to know the Word of God and know it well. But secondly here in the progression, we need to discover whether he's able to teach, which is why he's going to come and teach. Okay. He, can get, he must be able to give instruction. The very first vetting of the application, uh, of, the, of, the, of the applicants for the office, uh, that's what we need to do. We need to listen to him teach. And, and by the way, it's, it, it doesn't have to be just that once and done thing that he comes on Sunday and says, okay, you know, he did really good there. Well, he's going to bring his A game next week. Okay. I mean, he, he's going to. I mean, it, it, everybody who's ever been through a job interview knows that, right? You bring your A game. Well, we'll go on sermon audio. Or go to the uh, go to the website at the church where he's at. Find out when he was when uh, where, when he's preached other times when he wasn't being evaluated so you know intensely. Find out how he does then. Find out whether he knows how to teach how he how to preach. He, he does he know what he's talking about? And can he communicate it in a clear and careful and interesting way with appropriate appeals for response and for application it goes without saying that not all who know and believe the right thing are able to teach it the pastors need to have that second step they need to be able to teach interestingly when paul goes on in first timothy to detail the requirements of deacons he requires the first they must know the word but he leaves off the second right so they must know the word, but the requirement for deacons is not that they must teach it. But the pastor must be apt to teach. He must be able to teach. He must work on his pedagogy, his teaching skills. But Paul doesn't stop here. He adds yet one more qualification, one more skill for the pastor in this list by adding that the pastor must be able to defend the word against those who question it and those who reject it. This takes the pastor's task to another level. Again, just as, as we, we saw that some people are able to know what the Word says, but, can it, but cannot teach it, some are able to teach it, but cannot answer the questions about it. Okay? And the pastor is supposed to run the gamut. He's supposed to be able to do all three. So hopefully you'll have some occasion, uh, formally here, where you can... Ask him some questions. Okay. Sometimes he'll say, I don't know. I think that's a mark of humility to say occasionally, I don't know, but uh, you probably shouldn't say it at every other question that you ask him. He ought to be able to be, uh, 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 have a mastery over the material of his craft. He's a pastor, and he should know his Bible well enough to be able to answer the questions that are put his way. The list is long. Hopefully it didn't seem too long tonight here. There's, again, we went through 14 of 16 tonight, so it was a, a fairly uh, uh, a grueling uh, list here today. The expectations, though, are, are lofty, aren't they? The skills are difficult. But there's no job on earth that should have a more rigorous interview process, right? This man's not going to be flipping hamburgers. He's not going to be manufacturing cars. He's not going to be building great buildings. He's not going to be sending people into space. He's not even going to be the president of the United States. This man will be charged with much more. He's going to be a watcher of the souls of men, women, children who are in this church, those who make this church 
their home. And that, my friends, is a very sobering responsibility worthy of the greatest possible scrutiny. But, as we've said already at the beginning, laying aside this very last sphere, these skills here of pedagogy, all of these qualities, these characteristics, are expected of all of us. So while you review this list, even this week as you prepare uh, to hear a man next week who will come to your, into your pulpit, and I dearly hope you do review the list, I trust that you will not simply be a critic who is taking this list and comparing someone else by that list. Take the list first and compare your own conduct to it. Are you measuring that? Are you exhibiting these qualities that are requisite of a pastor, but things that you can cultivate in your lives as well. May the Lord help us all to that end, to be able to cultivate these qualities in ourselves, even as we evaluate pastors for the same. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the specificity, uh, for the detail that it gives to us. Uh, in, in this most important of decisions that a church can make. Lord, I ask that we would take these to heart and uh, be able to evaluate a pastor because there has been a sense in which, by the grace of God, we've become masters of these qualities ourselves. No, we never do arrive, and no one does. At the same time, Lord, I ask that you would cause each one of us to grow in our sanctification so that it can be said that these are marks of our lives as well as those of the man who stands in the pulpit week by week. Lord, we ask that you would help us to that end, we pray in your name. Amen.